Hey everybody and welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. As we already told you on our season opener, this is our new and second season where we are going to be doing two podcasts every month. So you're hearing from us a little more frequently. Before we jump into some of what we want to talk about at the top of the podcast, I want to just make sure everybody knows we're recording this on Wednesday, August 16th. So we're going to talk about some current events and they will be a little less current when the podcast airs. But this is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Seligson, President of Campus Compact. Yeah, so events of the recent weekend in Charlottesville are certainly something it's hard to get together to talk about community and civic engagement and our democracy without without referencing. So um, I know, Andrew, you sent out an email to everybody in our network across uh, the country, our staff network, and I just wanted to start with kind of your your thoughts on, you know, this coming right as the semester is kicking off, a campus was involved, um, kind of what the conversation is and, and what we're trying to do to help. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, like everybody else, uh, I was horrified by what happened. And I think that it, it is particularly uh, challenging to colleges and universities to think about how to do the things they are built to do in an environment in which the free exchange of ideas and the basic respect for equal human dignity that are the core of kind of academic culture, the academic mission, academic values are all being challenged in ways that we really aren't uh, equipped very well to deal with. And so, you know, for me, I think the, uh, the challenge is for each of us kind of individually to find things we need to do as people to take action on things we care about. And then, you know, in addition to that, think about how professionally we can work to create environments in which the kinds of education that's happening on our campuses helps nudge us in a different direction. I don't think colleges and universities alone can kind of recreate a political culture or create a new one. Uh, But I do think colleges and universities uh, ought to be more attentive and have a lot they can contribute to creating a healthy political culture in which people can disagree about things uh, without uh, intimidation, without violence, without demeaning other human beings and denying their legitimate participation in our public life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a real challenge um, for campuses to think about how to do. We just had our network retreat earlier this week, and this was definitely a topic of conversation for everyone. And I, I sometimes feel as though, you know, our campuses are looking to me for an answer, and I wish there was an answer. I don't think there is one, but I think there are a lot of different proactive things campuses can be trying. It kind of seems like everybody's just kind of waiting for the big thing to happen on their campus. But I think taking proactive steps around creating a climate of dialogue is a way you can, you know, not just wait for that, but really try to set something up in advance that helps those conversations go better if something does happen. 
I completely agree. I also think because we have had such an interesting past year as far as civil dialogue is concerned, I am hoping as tragic and awful as these events are and, and something that I obviously don't support, but I hope that it is a tipping point that does really help us meet in the middle, at least those of us who are not um, off in the deep end or doing violent types of um, outbursts or protests. I hope those of us who can come together in the middle can begin to have real conversations where otherwise we may have been polarized in some areas. So as tragic as this all is, I'm really hoping in some ways the positive is that this could be a tipping point that more people are coming out of the woodwork to say, I don't feel this is right and let's talk about this. At Campus Compact, we've been, um, we're in the middle of a, a, a grant making program uh, called the Fund for Positive Engagement. And essentially we put out the call to member colleges and universities to say, you know, we have small pots of money, it's just $5,000 a campus, but uh, to fund experiments aimed at doing something to challenge in a positive way the climate that's developed in the U.S. in the last couple of years and the ways that it's manifesting itself on our campuses. So we said to institutions basically tell us what you're facing, whether it's uh, just the inability of students to communicate with each other across political difference, whether it's uh, certain communities of students, immigrant students or Muslim students uh, facing abuse, conservative students feeling like they can't voice legitimate political views without suffering kind of social punishment or ostracism and propose something to, to challenge that. And what's interesting is, you know, we're still working through these and reviewing them. Um, we'll be making 40 grants, but we've seen a lot of interesting ideas coalescing around projects focused on dialogue in particular and projects focused on storytelling and the idea of using people's narratives, personal narratives of community to help people find connection across differences, whether in background, ethnicity, religion, political views, but to develop deeper understanding and opportunities for, for you know, get, getting to a place where working together to address public challenges is possible. Absolutely, lots of interest in those kinds of things, I would say from our member campuses. Um, a lot of proposals for that, but really just wanting to focus on storytelling. And I know that's something we're doing uh, in a couple of different ways at conferences and events this year, too. I'll say for in Iowa, and it's open to students beyond Iowa, too, we're having a um, Student Civic Action Academy in November. One of our keynote speakers is a pretty recent graduate here in Iowa, Vanessa McNeil. She's a filmmaker. She recently made a documentary about male survivors of sexual assault. She's a survivor herself and talks a lot about the power of the personal story and using your voice and, and different forms of art for advocacy. So I'm, I'm excited for that. And I know, Andrew, for the um, National Campus Compact Conference, there's a similar theme. Yeah, you know, our, our conference uh, and a, a theme we decided on a quite a while back is about communicating about how higher education can help advance democracy and uh, kind of making it happen and, and being able to talk publicly about how we make it happen. And, you know, I think we're, we're seeing, again, a lot in, in the proposals for that conference as well, this, this interest in, uh, in really responding to this set of challenges that I think uh, are frustrating and vexing to the great majority of people. I mean, one of, one of the things I really do believe is that, you know, obviously we have 
a a neo-Nazi white supremacist fringe that has been energized in the last year and a half. And that is a horrible thing. I also think it's true that large numbers of people with a broad range of political views are hopeful in the way JR was talking about that we can rediscover ways of communicating with each other. And I think it's also true that people are divided in themselves, that sometimes they just feel angry and outraged and a strong sense of opposition to what they don't agree with. And other times they think, isn't it possible for us to find ways to connect? So we, again, we're hopeful that we can, as Campus Compact, be a place where people can learn ways to try to kind of reinvigorate that sense of wanting something better and also help people discover some practical tools and pathways to make that happen. Mm, Absolutely. So we want to get right to our interview this week as usual, and then we'll be coming back at the end of the podcast for a new segment this season. Um, Andrew, you did our interview this month. Do you want to talk about who that was with? Absolutely. For me, it was a particularly fun uh, interview to get to do. I interviewed Richard Garassi. Richard is the president of Wagner College on Staten Island in New York City. He is also, and has been for the last three years, chair of the board of Campus Compact. So I work very closely with Richard uh, in leading and, and finding a path forward for Campus Compact. Richard is, I would say, one of the really great leaders in higher education today. He uh, has served in a whole variety of leadership roles nationally. He was president of the Coalition of Urban and Metropolitan Universities. He is a former chair of the New American Colleges and Universities and is vice chair of uh, the Association of American Colleges and Universities, AACNU, and he's had a lot of other positions. He's also someone who has been really effective in bringing people together to change institutions. He was a faculty member at St. Lawrence University and built an extraordinary first-year experience program that is still, I think now 30 years later, the foundation for the first-year experience there. Uh, He was a dean at Hobart William Smith, and then he went to Wagner first as provost uh, and helped to transform the curriculum in ways that he talks about during the interview, and then has been president for about the last 15 years. And uh, so I, I have learned an enormous amount personally from working with Richard. Uh, he's made tremendous change for these institutions and the communities to which they're connected and also has had a significant impact nationally. And uh, I hope everybody enjoys the conversation. Sounds good. We'll go right to that interview and then we'll be back. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Compact Nation podcast, Wagner President Richard Grassi. Welcome. Thank you, uh, Andrew. A pleasure to be with you. Richard, I wanted to start in by asking you a little bit about the experience at Wagner College for students. We will talk more about some of the broader issues confronting us nationally and in the context of civic engagement organizations. But I'm interested, you know, your primary role day to day is as a president at Wagner College. What what is it like for a student? What's distinctive about the experience at Wagner because of your commitment to the public good, to civic engagement? How does that show up in the life of a student? Sure. Well, a couple of ways. Well, the short answer is it shows up in the curriculum and in the co-curriculum and an inordinate amount of civic engagement work that kind of 
laces its way through student life, formally and informally, um, locally and nationally and internationally, but particularly locally. So uh, to be concrete about it, uh, we have a 10-year partnership with a community about two miles away called Port Richmond on Staten Island. Staten Island itself is 500,000 people. Port Richmond is about 15,000 of those people in one community. Historically, the commercial center of the island uh, in the old days before the Verrazano Bridge went up and connected Brooklyn and Staten Island that way, and the, and the great migration of people to Staten Island after that. That was in 1964. So what, what, what was the kind of commercial hub now is an inner city neighborhood, uh, poor neighborhood, struggling neighborhood, 65% Mexicans, mostly, and some Guatemalans, uh, uh, but mostly undocumented, largely, largely undocumented. Uh, 20% African-Americans, largely dispossessed African-Americans from my perspective, and the rest white ethnic working class New Yorkers. Um, and we have aligned uh, five, and now about to be six major policy areas which we have partnered with the community. So we're not doing for the community, we're doing with the community, which means it's a two-way uh, transmission of knowledge and engagement and culture and our students who come here would get involved either through their first year program seminar initially uh, or through any number of courses throughout all the disciplines from the professional studies in nursing and business and education through the humanities, lots of courses in literature and philosophy that are um, community-based learning uh, courses or through all the social sciences and a number of the sciences as well uh, and the arts and the like. But uh, even more dramatically than, than something you find in a course that excites you and gets you involved in community work, because I think that has a real limitation to it. And I say that as a strong, um, experienced um, community-based learning professor myself, uh, that has a real limitations to it. It begins and ends with semesters. Communities go on. The co-curricular component, which is laced to it, themed to it in many ways, is where students have either through the Bonner um, leaders program or through about four or five other programs that students have created and we've created as administrators and faculty as pathways to continue an ongoing civic work in the community to sustain it outside of courses um, but not uninformed by them. So a student would have that experience. I'll give you one concrete example. Anthony Tucker Bartley, um, African-American student who came to us as a football player, um, just uh, graduated from Wagner. His his uh, life experience through Wagner and civic engagement is pretty typical, although his endpoint was maybe more, more atypical. Uh, he got involved, even though he was a Division I athlete, he got involved through his, his Bonner uh, work. Uh, he was a Bonner scholar and, uh, and leader, and, uh, but decided he really wanted to go to medical school somewhere along the line and really took, uh, had actually left the football team because he got hurt in the end of the sophomore year was heavily involved in civic engagement in Port Richmond in a number of ways, tutoring, mentoring. I was able to really focus on a science scholarship as well. Uh, and Anthony um, finished as one of the most outstanding students we've had as a civic leader, as well as an academic leader. And now he's in the first year class of Harvard Medical School, not too far from you, where he was just, um, uh, the story was just done about him in the Harvard Medical School uh, Journal, I guess their magazine, uh, about his work and he's already started his work in Roxbury. 
So he's, a, he's an example of the way one would experience it, both curricularly and then co-curricularly. But it's become so much the signature of the student experience here for, I'd say, a large majority of our students. I can't say all of our students, but a large majority of our students. Um, and so they, they would be hard-pressed not to engage it in some significant way. And when you think about, from the standpoint of student learning and the kinds of things that you hope are being developed in your students and that you see being developed in them, what, what's, what's that about? What's the kind of the educational motivation for this work from your perspective? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, just to do it on the abstract level first, of course, all of us who are involved in this work are educating students to be uh, engaged citizens in a vibrant democracy and an inclusive democracy. So, I mean, that's kind of the banner which we work under all of us in Campus Compact. Um, but down to the granular aspects of that, what I see personally and what we, have, what we have seen through the data we've collected is that our students who, first of all, get engaged in any kind of experiential learning, not be it civic or otherwise, usually we see much more level of active learning on their part and much more ownership of their own education. And that leads to usually better learning outcomes, not just grade point outcomes, but learning outcomes in terms of real growth. Uh, and we see growth emotionally as well. Specifically, what I've seen, and maybe it's um, at this particular moment that we're being interviewed on in August in the shadow of Charlottesville, once again, another example of a treachery and horror and racism. Um, what I see is particularly my um, students of color, who I, my experience in the past was they would shy away from civic engagement, particularly in distressed neighborhoods that may have looked like the ones they came from because they felt like voyeurs or that was something they were leaving or uh, they felt like they were uh, inappropriately involved in one way or another or it was a white kid's game or whatever it might be. I find those students now who uh, are heavily involved in a sustained partnership, uh, the way we are in Port Richmond, uh, and go into a little more detail, that those youngsters um, find that they become heroes in that community and their self-esteem and their commitment then to their own education uh, takes on an added dimension. I've seen this very vividly with a large number of students here, uh, students of color, who have just taken off. They're not going to somebody else's school that they happen to be asked to be at. It becomes their institution. That's really something I had not seen any other place I've either been at or consulted with uh, in my experience. And so I, I think the civic work has particular meaning at this moment, but also all of our students. I wouldn't just, I just wanted to point at that one particular community because it's been absent in some ways in the past and it's such a vibrant experience for them now. But I, for all of our students who are heavily involved in the civic work, you know, all the basic indicators of grade point persistence, graduation rates, entrance to graduate and professional schools, good jobs, all of those things are off the charts. You can almost do a direct correlation at Wagner. Uh, but more importantly, their maturity, their sense of purpose, their sense that they have a mapping now of going through college. There's, there's something they want to do to affect the world around them. They're able to learn the skill sets here of how to do that effectively. Uh, those are palpable here. And I, that's what I see in the uh, biographies of my students. And you mentioned that you thought the educational outcomes were dependent in part on a sustained partnership and the, the depth and, and breadth of your connectedness to Port Richmond. Can you, if we flip that around and look at it from the perspective of a, 
a community resident. Mm -hmm. How does how does Wagner show up in the life of Port Richmond? What does the the partnership yeah. mean in practice? Well, it's a, a bit uneven because so I have to just sort of tell you why. Um, <clears throat> so we're in five policy areas. The, our big areas are, of course, <clears throat> uh, pre-collegiate college readiness from elementary school to middle school through high school <clears throat> with a very vibrant, strong, robust, deep, comprehensive program, which I'll tell you about. We're also, in the, because we have a strong um, health profile here with uh, health professions, uh, very strong in health inequalities in the poor neighborhood, augmenting lots of the services that from our local hospitals and nonprofits uh, with our nursing, PA, and pre-med students. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, also vibrant in the arts and uh, public space around public history and giving voice, helping the community get real voice. <coughs> but... Um, less so in economic development, because mostly it's mom and pop development here. With but helping immigrants start businesses is not an insignificant thing, but it's not as we're not as uh, the biggest player in that space. And then, of course, we are fairly big in uh, immigration justice issues. That's where we started way back when, since we have so many um, residents who are at risk. So, um, for a Staten Island resident, a Port Richmond resident, if uh, if they're in the schools. We're in about nine different elementary schools. We're major with offices in one, and then we're in with an office. And when I say an office, I mean a whole range of tutoring and mentoring and incredible involvement by faculty and students and staff. In the middle school, we are, I think we're the only, I, I might be mistaken, but I think we're the only college university with a pre-collegiate presence all day long, five days a week in a middle school, which feeds into our high school, Port Richmond High School, which we have a very strong program with both in scholarships and in mentoring and leadership training and academic training from their sophomore year through their senior year to enhance the number of students who are outside of the range of college acceptability but have all the aptitude to do it is to get to them early in their high school career. Now we're getting into them earlier in their elementary school career all the way through kind of a passport model through to the high school into college. So those students in and around the school systems know about us uh, uh, quite, they know about us uh, uh, and, and they're, they're, they're aware of what the power of what the partnership can do for them and their families. We get parents involved in this quite heavily. Uh, in the health space, they see a lot of Wagner presence in augmenting services that you could imagine with developing people in allied health fields in direct service ways and in health education ways or in nutrition and, and the like in a number of spots. They see us uh, in, the, in the immigrant community through a number of our partners like El Centro de Immigrante and a few other organizations, which we are there every day uh, on tutoring and mentoring and all kinds of life skills and the like, and just being a witness and, and, a, and, a, and a good partner with family, particular families. Um, we have a transnational program where we have been able to reunite um, folks from Mexico with their relatives here uh, in Port Richmond who are unable to travel, of course, across the border, otherwise they never get back. And so we have been a principal partner in reuniting, oh, 20 to 30 families a year for a week or two at a time where we are able to uh, serve as hosts for uh, family members who we see as cultural ambassadors and provide cult direct cultural um, exhibitions, art, music, dance, 
um, all kinds of ways here. So we're able to get visas for them, and, but they reunite with members of their family who they haven't seen often for 10 or 15 or 20 years. Uh, so you'd feel it that way. And I could go on. So you'd, you'd feel the presence. We don't have a big storefront. We don't have a bus that runs. Well, we have vans that run through every day, but we don't have a big, you know, we're not advertising this in some kind of PR way. Uh, we, we, they find us through all these other portals of direct relationships. So I can imagine uh, that over the years, you've probably had a few conversations about this work with, for example, members of your board of trustees who might wonder why this is such a big focus of your work. You're a relatively small institution, student focused. And so you might get this question, what, why are we so embedded in this community doing all of these different things that you've described? How do you talk about that with a trustee? Yeah, well, and also understand that, you know, um, while Staten Island is um, a, a fairly large place in terms of population, larger than Cleveland or Oakland or St. Louis or, you know, in proper in terms of the number of people, and it's in New York City, uh, it's dwarfed by the other four boroughs, which are 8 million people, we're 500,000. And it's, a, it's considered the conservative borough because the south shore of the borough is very Republican, very strong Republican area. The North Shore, where we're located, is fairly diverse, and, and, and you know, I'm a political scientist, so I look at voting patterns. They tend to vote Democratic on the North Shore, very strong Republican on the South Shore. So you can imagine it's, this is not some lib, ideal liberal um, location, and therefore um, there are significant numbers of people in the community as well as um, some on my board of trustees who would consider themselves fairly conservative politically. So explaining this work, can always be a challenge. And when we first started the partnership about 10 years ago, I got lots of stares and looks, and particularly since we're throwing a lot of scholarship money into this college scholarship money at the end of the road. Uh, it built over time, but the way uh, I was able to approach this was to um, get out of ideology, get out of political partisanship, and develop a vocabulary and grammar that you know spoke back to our founding documents, so to speak, I won't say founding leaders, but founding documents around fairness and equity and old fashioned notion of initiative, because we were working with a community to help the community pick itself up. We weren't doing for the community. I don't use terms like social justice. They don't work here. The vocabulary doesn't go anywhere. But I do use terms like community development and self-initiative and old fashioned community, the notion of neighborhoods and neighbors. And that uh, helped us transcend some of the initial roadblocks that people would put up because they would see this as do-goodism or you know, some kind of hidden liberal agenda for social activism or what have you. It isn't. It's, it, it, it transcends all of that. And that's why we keep it at a neighborhood level because it makes more sense for us. It, this is, in a sense, part of our extended neighborhood. It's not the direct neighborhood we're in, but it's, right, it's two miles away. And so um, that, that developed uh, a sense of purpose. That was one. Two, we had a curriculum that we put in for all of our undergraduates since 1998 called the Wagner Plan for the Practical Liberal Arts. And that was heavily built around the notion of place and location. Uh, and experiential learning was a big part of that. That has been our hallmark academic program now for 20. We're, we're celebrating our 20th year with that program next fall. And um, they had a direct line then between the civic and the experiential, which made sense to my, my 
board and to others in the community, including my faculty and the like, that this was an extension of what was inherent in the Wagner plan. The Wagner plan reconciles professional learning and liberal education together, and experiential learning becomes the bridge that connects them together around learning communities and, and the like, which are all required and built in over the four years. And so that made sense on a second level. So the first level was, you know, we were started as a Lutheran college. We haven't been Lutheran for 40 years, but we were started with a college and so many private institutions with social purpose, spiritual purpose, uh, which is to be a deep and broad education to create independent thinkers, but to also be of service in connecting to the world around us uh, to make, them, make it better. Uh, and second lineage was, okay, this was about our curricular strengths. And then thirdly, what's happened is because we began to track students who have been coming to us from around the country, we're 46, I think we're 46 states and 34 countries now who come to Wagner, um, that uh, they want to be in a school which is actively involved in solving problems like this. Uh, they, they, they cut across the political spectrum at our campus. Um, so, but they all unite around this notion that being involved in direct service and directly solving problems with community uh, is something they want to be part of. I think maybe that's generational and the social media court helps us out quite a bit. So I see students across the board working together who I'm always surprised to find out that this person's a, a this and that person's a that, this person's a libertarian or conservative, that person's a liberal or socialist or whatever it might be. And uh, I don't know that going, not only going in, we don't know that most of the time because they're united around these this larger kind of traditional Americana uh, notion of, of community, almost like a Benjamin Franklin notion of a community development model. So you're, you've made the point that uh, just now quite directly that this is work that is not partisan in nature, but that it is connected to the political life of the country, the political education of students. Can you say a little bit more about that? What's the contribution uh, for students, you know, through, through their engagement in this kind of community-focused work? What does that have to do with American democracy? Yeah. Well, first of all, I emphasize, and this, I'm just speaking for Richard now at Wagner because I, I don't necessarily make my voice the most important voice, but it's a voice with some significance. I, I emphasize deeply the civic notion of what we're doing here. We're building a democratic culture, a culture of us. That is a prerequisite for a vibrant democracy. We've seen many attempts to build democracies in countries that do not have a civic culture that's democratic or even approaching pre-democratic um, design and experience. And those, those attempts to have formal structural democracies in governance fail because they haven't built, you know, independent thinking and shared experiences and the like. Uh, so I emphasize the civic here. That is our job. It will travel to the political. And this is my hypothesis, that building a vibrant democratic culture will lead to active citizenship and therefore will lead to uh, outcomes which are supportive of democratic goals. Uh, and I mean democracy in the broadest sense, in terms of all the rights and entitlements and, and shared responsibilities, as well as um, you know, all, all of the notions of responsibility that go with it. So, um, we, so we are, we're, not, we're intentionally not talking about the political as part of the civic engagement program. There's a lot of political activity at Wagner, left, right, center, but um, <clears throat> it's, not, it's not what our goal is. That's, that's an outcome of the work that we're doing and people take it where they feel they have to. 
Um, so that's, that's how we approach this subject, is, is building a culture of democracy, which is about inclusion, equity, fairness, individual voice, as well as collective voice, learning how to parse the two together. Uh, those are the, building the kind of um, uh, art of democracy is an important part of, of what we're doing about emphasizing empathy and reciprocity, as well as you know, the traditional notions of independent thinking, we might call it critical thinking, and establishing one's voice and one's responsibility to be active in their community. You make a, a compelling case for, for why you ought to be doing this from the standpoint of students' education and the greater good of the country. All of that uh, is really important and also does not explain how we make it possible. And I'm wondering at a very specific level, since you're the president of a college, how do you pay for this work? Student scholarships, transportation, you know, the kinds of training, all the, all the things, having a Bonner leader program. How, how are you able to fund these initiatives? On the fiscal side, yeah. Because there's also a lot of sweat equity, which we can talk about later. But uh, on the fiscal side, um, some of it is through operating expenses, and I'll explain through scholarships and our commitment there um, for all of our students, and particularly the students who are coming out of some of our programs in the high schools. Um, so some of it's out of operating funds, which is tuition-based. Some of it is out of uh, grant getting that we do. Some of it is out of endowment building we've done, and some of it is out of donors. So um, we you know, try to work all those four streams constantly in a balanced way. This is not easy. Um, it's, it's some, well, it's any small college will tell you, uh, and probably even larger institutions that, uh, being able to balance resources against needs so that you have a sustainable fiscal model, which is not unimportant in social change as leaders, learning how to be effective fiscal leaders is as, because if you don't have effective fiscal leaders, you aren't going to be able to sustain the programs you care about, care about priorities and your values. But learning how to do a balanced fiscal program that's sustainable, it means it's very dynamic and every single day you're balancing and rebalancing your budget, you're balancing and rebalancing the resources you have, trying to acquire more, but also use them effectively. So that is the art of, of being a good leader, um, is learning how to manage an institution. Um, if we're gonna be progressives, uh, we just can't be critics. We have to take on the skills, the, uh, the art and science of governance. And so and here at Wagner, as I said, we have those four streams that we use a lot. We've had some very strong support from a, a, a couple of people who historically came from Port Richmond, uh, who have made uh, significant career uh, gains uh, and gone on to great wealth. And now years later, I've been able to bring them back to a community they grew up in. It looks so different from what it did when they were there, but they see in the eyes of these mostly children uh, and high school kids, some of their own experiences of getting from being a working class white kid to Wagner, making it and, and doing exceedingly well in their careers and feeling that they, they can make a difference in their own lives by helping the lives of others. We have foundations that have seen the work we've done that we've been able to show the outcomes. They're quite impressed and able to fund us. That's something we're getting better at. Um, I'm able as a president to move some money around to make sure that we're supporting these, this work, showing how it links back into the curriculum, back into basic goals and priorities of the institution, how it's enhancing the brand of the institution, a popular word these days, by showing that the value of a Wagner education and what students are able to learn and do, 
and how employers are seeking students who have the skill sets of community work, of leadership, of reciprocity and empathy, of ways in which they collaborate well together and are problem solvers. The civic work speaks to all of that uh, and it comes to them in any number of ways. So, so I'm able to manage all of that, uh, at least that's my work, build a staff around me who's committed to this, these values, um, support a faculty and more and more and more, I'd say 40% of our faculty now are committed to this work in direct ways. Um, and, um, and encouraging a student body uh, to be um, recognized for the kind of work that they're doing. And, and this is critically important, bringing the community onto my campus endless ways, from sporting events to mentoring and tutoring to um, being able to give voice to their own community needs, um, making sure that they feel this is, even though we're a private institution, that this is their institution too. Uh, that we're, the community is highly welcomed here in a number of ways and, 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 pre and involved in lots of ways. So all of that, um, I think, contributes to being able to patch together enough resources to keep it going, um, make sure that we don't promise more than we can deliver, uh, but it's a constant um, commitment to make it work. So you've described a, a challenge that you meet because you personally are committed and because you, there's a, now a culture at your institution of being committed to the public good and of kind of all hands on deck. I'm thinking, you know, a little bit in the context of the national landscape, you obviously, in addition to your leadership of Campus Compact, have, have led the Coalition of Urban and Metropolitan Universities. You've played leadership roles in AACNU and other organizations. And I'm wondering when you, you know, given the kind of headwinds uh, in many ways that this work faces, the, you know, extreme focus in many state legislatures on job preparation for students, um, a, you know, a kind of uh, cynicism that has swept the country about the possibility of uh, the kind of public life that you were describing where there's a, a sense of an us to which we are all committed. How, what do you see as making it possible to bring along and engage some of your peers, presidents across the country in this work, given, given the realities of the environment you're working in? Uh, that's a big question. So let me just pre precede that by saying the following. All colleges, small privates and particularly vulnerable, the ones that are not well endowed, Wagner's not a huge endowed institution. We have less than $100 million endowment, which sounds like a lot of money to a public institution, but really doesn't throw up enough to offset uh, huge tuition dependency. All, all, all colleges, whether they're publicly funded and dealing with legislative appropriations or, and cutbacks uh, to private ones uh, outside of the top 50, which are you know, very well endowed, even those have some issues. All of us are dealing with a couple of key issues. The, the, the fiscal model, the business model of higher education is broken. And that creates an atmosphere of tension um, that all of us have to face. Um, and, and secondly, in, in this work, as we just talked about, finding the resources to make sure these programs are sustainable around the civic work, critical, and making sure that it's a priority. And thirdly, and this is a big one, is we're gonna see an entire generation of leaders leave um, the leadership positions they're in. And I don't mean just college presidents and provosts and some faculty members, I mean also in the community, in the K through 12 world, in the healthcare world, and the nonprofit world, we're, we're, there's gonna be a whole set of challenges around succession. So that's a frame 
kind of a, that we work through. But my argument to college presidents, fellow college presidents, university presidents, and other leaders, foundation leaders and the like, are several fold. First of all, the work is this work of building democratic citizens is in the DNA of why every single one of our institutions were founded. Go back and look at our histories, whether they were land-grant institutions or privately founded religious institutions in the 19th, 18th, 16th, 17th century, uh, land-grant institutions after the Civil War, community colleges, which are obviously by definition committed to their local communities, urban institutions created it right after, most of them after World War I, dealing with mostly immigrant communities in the inner cities. Everyone can go on, every one of us um, have in our mission statement something about education and democracy. So that's level one. It's key to who we are. Level two, if we don't be able to do the kind of civic work, particularly I would argue in the education space, pre-K all the way through college success, but there's so many other areas that affect that. That's why partnerships need to be comprehensive and neighborhood-based. But if we don't do that work, they're not going to be an educated of uh, a pool of students able to do college work uh, in an affordable way, in a successful way. We have to build our own constituency here. So there's kind of a naked self-interest uh, for, for those who are skeptical of civic work. Um, and then thirdly, I think there's a direct relationship between, as we were talking about, and there's a lot of evidence to this effect out there, that increasing civic engagement work, increasing learning outcomes, both in terms of knowledge learned, um, performance uh, around uh, academic outcomes and sustainability in terms of graduate schools and professional work and successful careers. So that's the third, the third piece I think is just on the, on the learning and outcome model. Um, and then finally, I would argue that it is extremely compelling to constituents who are families who are thinking about sending their children, traditional age students to college. And I would go beyond that, but let me just stick with that age group. Uh, to, to go to an institution that has a defined civic purpose and that has reaching out to the communities around it, engaging students in ongoing direct learning by doing. And it's a very compelling argument. And again, I say pre presented in a nonpartisan way that this is about building our, our, our neighborhoods together. And ultimately the aggregate of that is building a, a democratic culture. Um, that is, I found that not only do young students, 17, 18 year olds respond to this, I think their families see that as an important piece of establishing, and maybe in their eyes, reestablishing some sense of public purpose to higher education beyond just simply, I want to get a job and a good career. There's a lot of that in, in their decision making. As I said, point three speaks to that. But point four, it gives them a sense of a higher purpose. And what the one thing, of course, that we're missing in the last 30 years, uh, at least, uh, of our, not only our politics, but our higher education uh, uh, culture is some sense of idealism. Uh, you know, we're a system, we're, we've created a culture of, of negations and criticism. And if we don't have ideals, if you don't know what the mountaintop is supposed to look like, you don't know where you are on the mountain and you don't even know if you should climb it. So I'll, I'll stop there. Well, let me jump off from that. As you mentioned earlier, we're recording, you know, just a couple of days after the the racist violence in Charlottesville, we're you know facing a broader environment of an upsurge in kind of white supremacist rhetoric and attacks on uh, all sorts of groups in our uh, communities. 
uh, a, a kind of declining capacity to have conversations across political disagreement, a whole range of, of interconnected phenomena. And I'm wondering right now, what should higher education be focusing on in this context? What, what do we have to offer and what do we need to do to make that real? Okay, so I, I would say I'm a political scientist by training. I study urban politics and American politics in particular. So let me say this carefully. Um, our institutions of, um, our political institutions and the institutions around governance are broken. And that, that's to say the obvious. Um, higher education has to fill a void here. It has to fill a void around preparing students to help become the kind of inclusive leaders that will lead institutions, and I mean leadership in the broadest sense, uh, lead institutions that will help affect the kind of issues of equity um, and inequality that are plaguing, and racism um, that are just plague, and sexism and the like, that are plaguing our society. That we can't depend on the institutions that formerly would look to in terms of political parties, uh, governments, local, national, state, they're not up to the task at, at the moment. We, not, we don't have a political culture for all sorts of reasons that will support the kind of development of leadership change uh, that we need. That to affect the issues of inequality uh, and, and equity that are so necessary for this country to be able to um, uh, see progress both economically and socially, and both are critically important, um, and also deal with an environmental crisis that's on, right on our doorstep, to be able to do that, we need to play the significant role in shaping the nature of our, uh, our, our political culture, our democratic culture, our civic culture, and prepare students specifically to be able to lead towards a dem democratic outcomes. Um, sitting back and thinking of ourselves as institutions which are based on a removed sense of objectivity, seeking through, through uh, antiseptic notions of, of, of involvement in the culture around us, that day is over. If we play that game, we might as well just say we have no relevance to the rest of society. Society is looking for leadership somewhere they can believe in. They look at higher education very skeptically now. One, the public narrative is so built around the notion of cost um, and scandal, you know, cost for higher education, athletic scandals, and all the rest of that stuff. We need to reestablish, uh, and we are to some degree, but we need to be much more open about this, and college presidents need to take the leadership here and their boards in saying that we have a direct responsibility for building a democratic culture, and that is what we're going to provide our society in addition to the kinds of skill sets that students want for the development of their own careers. So I, I, I think personally that if we don't follow that path, if we don't be able to outline to our fellow um, presidents and, and leaders of institutions of higher education, that it's an, an absolutely essential nature of their work to be able to, to prioritize democratic education and civic involvement, then I think we are going to become um, even less and less significant and important and less funded um, in our society. Richard, you have uh, outlined some big challenges for us and uh, in your own work, you've exemplified how it's possible really to meet those challenges, both at the level of an individual institution and in your leadership of national organizations. So I just wanna thank you for the work that you do and thank you so much for being a guest on the Compact Nation podcast. Well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, Campus Compact is a 
vital, essential organization in this work. You know, I believe that very deeply. It's, it's uh, the largest and oldest civic engagement organization. It's gone through a wonderful transformation around focusing around uh, partnership work um, in our local communities and, and throughout a number of, 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 of arenas outside of our local uh, uh, communities. It's built on an anchor model now. And um, I, I can't say enough for, about Campus Compact. The directors, the state leaders, the people who run our boards, the national, the national affiliated institutions, and your own leadership and staff who are what's really developing uh, Compact into a, a critical agency in this work. Thank you. Well, thank you again. So welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're here to talk a little bit about the interview. Um, great interview. I just love Richard, so it's always interesting to hear his insights. And I think one of the ones that was more interesting to me was how he thinks about the language he uses to describe this work. Um, as we all know from serving campuses across the country, there are lots of different missions and motivations and reasons for doing this work. Some can be more rooted in social justice and activism, and some can be more rooted in religious traditions or um, notions of community self-sufficiency and neighborhood connections. And he kind of talked about using language that speaks across those and, and in particular doesn't alienate people and um, mentioned specifically not using the term social justice because that wouldn't resonate. Um, I thought that was interesting, and it's certainly something I think about a lot in terms of wanting to be authentic, but also help people see those connections. So that was helpful to me. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the things I, I hear very strongly when I talk to Richard, uh, he he grew up in Brooklyn. Um, he is a kind of consummate city kid, and, you know, he talks now about the neighborhood as one of those sort of language anchors that brings people together, that there, there's nothing about a, a strong neighborhood or a great neighborhood that has any partisan flavor to it. And, and you know, the nature of a neighborhood is that what brings people together is that they're in proximity to each other, not that they share a political perspective or, again, a, yeah, views about any particular topics. And I just, you know, I hear the resonance in that, and I've seen him interacting with folks from the schools that he's talked about working with and students on the campus who have come through some of their programs in Port Richmond. And uh, th there is that sense of kind of people being in it together that has, has just to do with, hey, we're all here, let's get some work done together. And I can see how he's been able to build that. And it really is for him inflected with this strong sense of values and of you know, the legitimacy of everybody having a voice and an opportunity to make the most of themselves and to participate in their communities. So it's not as if um, it's kind of like, let's get away from the big questions by focusing on neutral language. It's just that, yeah, I think he's found a way to bring people into it uh, in ways that make sense to them and then allow them to do that work together. And I think that's so important because we do get hung up on terms within higher education and especially mm -hmm. within faculty culture we do as well. And I've been to so many faculty meetings where we're arguing over terms. And the reality is these aren't terms that anyone in our neighborhoods uh, would use or even across divisions, right, within higher education would use. And so I feel like that's such an important point to think about communication and language and how we're really trying to find uh, the right solution, and it's less about the way that we we phrase it or fight over who owns what term or what those definitions may look like. 
Yeah, I think it, Absolutely. And, you know, another part of that as well is just the sort of connecting to the different kinds of interests that can be served through the sorts of partnerships that that Richard has been developing, you know, and in partnership and in concert with others in the community that, you know, again, we talked about what do members of the board of trustees see in it? And he's been able to make the case for a vibrant college. And again, you know, knowing a little bit about the history of that institution, it is much stronger today than it was when Richard started his work there. And it's, and as he said, it's partly because students are excited to be part of a campus that is actively enabling them to be part of change making and to be part of projects that are larger than themselves. And when the trustees see that this attracts students and it attracts students who are exciting and who add to the, uh, you know, the sort of, uh, I'm, can't, I'm losing English words here, but make the campus a livelier place. You know, they're excited about that too. And so you can you can bring people on board through different dimensions of the work and what it what it creates. Yeah, and he talked about that in the context of engaging other presidents, you know, just making the point that every higher ed institution, you know, all different um, shapes and sizes has a mission that somehow gets back to these these same core values to being connected to the community, to being a part of a vibrant democracy, those kinds of things. And so I think that's incumbent upon us to continue to find ways to make this community engagement umbrella meet those missions and, and to help campuses find those ways and find their own unique niches. That's one of the things that I run into the most is campuses saying, well, well how should we be doing this? You know, tell us the way to do this. And yeah, I can offer models and ideas and research, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is that to me is that each campus finds their way of doing this and their niche for this and, and their way that it makes sense. We don't want higher ed institutions across the country that are all the same. You know, we need very, very different institutions serving different needs. And so that, that but that's more of a process for campuses to go through. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think, you know, Richard talked some about the kind of history and traditions of Wagner and how the work they're doing now connects with those. And I think you're exactly right, Emily, that, you know, community colleges have one reason and one way that they are connected to communities. That's different from, uh, you know, a large Jesuit university, but they have another reason based in their own tradition that kind of commits them to doing this work. And, you know, big public research universities have ways that their mission of serving their states, et cetera, connects to the public good. And so, right, we wouldn't expect them to all do the same things, but all of these institutions, one way or another, have a mission that is about serving the public and, you know, the kinds of work that we, that we uh, support, whether it's community partnerships, whether it's community-based research, whether it's civic and service learning in the curriculum, these are approaches that, that connect to those missions. And I do think the in some ways, the real genius of the the great leaders that I've seen of institutions is to discover in the traditions and the vocabulary and the values of their own communities the, the way to articulate that public mission and, and the kind of mechanisms for making it real. And as you said, it looks different everywhere that it's done well, uh, but but they, they have that in common, that deep connection to the values and the the history, the tradition of the place. 
Yeah. So we have a new segment in this the second season of the Compact Nation podcast. As I mentioned at the top, we are going to be doing two podcasts each month. So Pop Culture Corner isn't going anywhere, but we're not going to do it twice a month. So on the other podcast, what we decided to talk a little bit more about is just recent resources we've found that might be relevant to our audience. So that I see as being a wide range of things. It can be online. It can be um, it can be videos you watched, podcasts, other podcasts you listen to, books, articles, all kinds of things. Just some some little quick thing that might help our listeners. And um, I'm going to kick it off, and, and mine are a couple of podcasts, actually, that I listened to this week. And it kind of goes back to our conversation at the beginning of the episode about um, Charlottesville and some of those events. And I think just a lot of white people in particular um, trying to figure out how to get involved and um, on NPR has two podcasts I really like. Uh, one is Code Switch and one is um, It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders. That one's pretty new. They both kind of talked about this and Code Switch um, talked about DNA in particular and they talked about a DNA project at Westchester University that's been going on for a decade where a select group of students takes DNA tests and then has a broader conversation about what that means and identity and different things like that and they've seen a lot of success with that so kind of going back and talking about narrative and how those kinds of things play into it um and then on sam sanders recent podcast he offered a few more explicitly um resources aimed at at white people wanting to get involved and as a parent of two little kids i was particularly interested in a conversation with a child development psychologist um from a university in tyler texas who has done a lot of work about how kids think about race and how to talk to them about that, which is something I'm, I'm trying to do um, and trying to figure out how to make appropriate for, you know, three and five-year-olds. Uh, so those were both really interesting to me, and I would just suggest, you know, again, both examples of things higher ed is, is doing to contribute, um, but also examples uh, that might be relevant for your life, for your campus. Yeah, one thing we've done uh, in the national office on our website, compact.org, is just put together a, a web page bringing together some resources that we think might be helpful for people teaching classes who, for whom it makes sense to address uh, the issues that were raised in Charlottesville um, and, yeah, the, the kind of the broad range of issues and the particular incidents. So, um, we we will put the link to that in the on the show page, um, but you can also just find it by going to compact.org. We'll put it up on the front page. It's been uh, pulled together by uh, Nantali Morrow, who's a grad student at Penn State, uh, who we've been working with this summer. Danielle Leek, our director of professional learning, and then uh, Liza Bloomquist from uh, JR's shop, Indiana Campus Compact, uh, contributed as well. And, you know, it's a, a intended to be a living resource. It's a web page. We can add to it. So as people suggest to us further resources, we can continue to build that out. Um, so I, I uh, encourage people to just go check that out as well. And I have a few resources I'll add. And I feel like I may be cheating a little bit because I love Pop Culture Corner and I am a reader. I think everybody knows that I read nonfiction, fiction, I just burn through books. So a couple of books I mentioned last season that I want to bring up again, one is called The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which is a YA, but a very grown up YA 
that covers a African-American high school student who goes to an all-white high school on the other side of town and what her life is like living between both worlds, especially when she witnesses uh, some police brutality and the conversations that are happening in both neighborhoods. And she's literally caught in the middle. And I think it's a great uh, discussion, a book discussion book uh, for reading groups. So that's one I'd recommend. Another one I mentioned last year. Oh, and JR, I just have to jump in and say that I read that one at your recommendation. Did you like it? Yes, I liked it very much. It was very interesting perspective. And um, yeah, would just second that recommendation. Are you using it with your class? I'm not using it as my class, so I don't. I think I've talked already on the podcast that kind of my side hustle is teaching, um, and I'm teaching a class on the Black Lives Matter movement, and uh, it's only eight weeks, so I'm kind of limited in in the amount of material, and I already have a lot of great stuff. But I am for that class using a new book called The Making of Black Lives Matter, um, which is a, a lot more tying the movement into other historical movements and 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 figures, and so I'll recommend that one too. But yeah, we'll see. I might add it in the future. I think it, I think it would be a great addition, but so do I. So the do other I. one I would throw out again, and I think it's an okay book. It's good. It's it has mixed reviews, but it's Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, which is a memoir about him growing up in rural Ohio and talks about rural white culture. That I think is just a fascinating look into the lives of um, the rural poor. And I would also throw out that Humboldt State University in California, they have a really great resource guide on discussing whiteness uh, among white folks. So I would put that out there, some good resources to dig into and read. Good stuff. All right, everybody. Well, I think that does it for this uh, second part of the month. Um, again, forgive us, who the heck knows what will have happened in the world in the in the two weeks between when we recorded this and when you listen, but hopefully all good things. And we will be back with a couple of other really exciting episodes. So stay tuned. As always, find us at uh, compact.org slash podcast. Email us at podcast at compact.org. Find us on social media using hashtag compactnationpod. Rate us and review us on iTunes. Tell your friends, tell your grandma, tell everybody you can find (laughs) um, that we'll have a lot more great episodes for you this year. So thanks and have a great day, guys. Bye-bye. everyone. Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. Habiba, I'm wondering if you could give us some feedback on our episode. 